Welcome back to The Word is Resistance. This is the podcast where we're exploring the Bible in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression. This is the world in which we're living today. My name is Will Green, and this podcast is a project of Surge Faith and Surge Action. Surge stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice. It's an acronym, S-U-R-J, Surge, Showing Up for Racial Justice. Surge is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people working to resist racism and white supremacy who are part of Christian traditions that read the Bible. We're bringing our commitment to fight white supremacy and our commitment to be anti-racist, live anti-racist lives, into direct engagement with the lectionary. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback and accountability from listeners of color. To introduce myself a little, my name is Will Green, and I'm a United Methodist pastor who lives on land that was inhabited, inhabited by Pentecost people before the Christian invasion of 1620. I'm a white, cisgender, gay man, pronouns he, him, his, who serves a congregation in so-called Andover, Massachusetts. In addition to ministry in my congregation, I'm also involved in my community in the work of prison abolition. I believe in a world without prisons. In this episode, I'm going to be focusing on the gospel reading for Sunday, March 24th, 2019. It's the gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. It really is an odd passage. It begins with Jesus having a uh, rather difficult-to-follow dialogue about some current events that we in the 21st century really don't know much about. So there's this sort of obscure back-and-forth Jesus has with the crowd, and, but then it goes into a more conventional parable. Not that parables are ever really conventional, but it's a little easier to follow in the second half. I'm organizing my thoughts around three points. Uh, uh, the first point is about the weird opening dialogue, and then my second and third points, my second and third observations, are about the parable, which is a parable of a fig tree. So let's start with the gospel reading. This is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. This is the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version translation, but I've changed some of the pronouns into the character names or titles, just to try to make it easier to follow. This is a passage where Jesus is talking to a crowd, and uh, just by way of introduction, as I said, this passage is a little hard to get into because it starts with a comment from the crowd about a topic that we don't have any context for. There's a reference made to something that we don't understand. I think of this as a, I think of this scene as sort of like when you go to a, a speech or a lecture and it's followed by a question and answer session. And you know how half the time when there's a question and answer session, you don't understand a question that's asked or maybe the question that's asked doesn't make any sense. But somehow the person on the stage, uh, somehow or they use that question to come back to, to come back to what they want to talk about or they find a way to wave, to weave it into their larger themes that's sort of how I read this, you know, with Jesus being the one who takes the question. So, here we go with the reading from Luke. Here it is. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, 
that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Jesus goes on. Or those 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all those living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then Jesus told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay, that's the reading. I hope you follow how, like I said, it's in two parts. The second part's a parable. The first part's this odd back and forth where the crowd mentions something about Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, whatever that means. And then Jesus makes a comment about how those people are people like everyone else, no better, no worse. And Jesus actually says that those people, those Galileans, are like the crowd that he's talking to because they share in common a need for repentance. And then Jesus connects uh, those Galileans to people who apparently had died when a tower fell on them. Okay, odd details, right? And I don't have any historical background to share on what this actually refers to or what's going on with this part of the passage, but... I feel like I do know what's going on in a sense, and here's what I mean. What's going on here, I'm suggesting, is that someone in the audience is simply bringing up something that's in the news, a piece of current events, something that everyone knows about and everyone's talking about. Even though you and I, we who are reading this, we don't know the details, we don't know what they're talking about. We can tell that everyone in the story does. The crowd knows, Jesus knows, it's something that's on everyone's mind. Okay, this sort of dynamic is a thing that we can relate to. We know what it's like when someone, let's say, at weekly Bible study, in my context, someone at weekly Bible study says, okay, what does what we're reading have to do with this story I heard in the news? Or think about when someone asks you, you know, what does your church think about X, Y, Z? This is the sort of dynamic. As someone who writes and preaches a sermon every Sunday, I know what it's like to wonder how much of the news of the week should be integrated into the sermon? I feel like that's the question here. People who listen to Jesus are bringing up these Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with the sacrifices because it's current events, and they want Jesus to make a a connection or to reflect on it somehow. That's how I'm reading this section. And I think the question of how to relate current events, if you will, with the teachings of Jesus. It's a really good question for the word is resistance and other spaces where people try to wrestle with the word in our current political context. In our day, people always ask, what do the sayings of Jesus have to do with the world we live in? You know, what does any of this stuff in the Bible have to do with reality? And as I'm reading this passage from Luke 13, I'm imagining the very same question being asked on the pages of the Bible itself. Someone within the story is saying to Jesus, can you relate what you're saying to what just happened with these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices? Sorry, I keep using that phrase. You know, just like podcasters today, Jesus had to wonder, he had to ask, how much should I be talking about 
stuff that happened yesterday, the stuff on everybody's mind. How much should I refer to these things as I try to teach and try to learn about God? I know that my other friends who I collaborate with on The Word is Resistance, we talk about this all the time. Is this podcast supposed to be all about what happened this week? You know, personally, I want to be relevant, but also I'm not a journalist. I can't get my, I can't get my hands around it all. Preachers should always be struggling with this. We always are asking ourselves, should we be making these subtle, implicit references to news stories? Or on the other hand, should we be making obvious, explicit, crystal clear connections to what's happening in the world? Also, when should we try to create some space where people don't think about current events? Not that reality should be avoided, but simply there needs to be some space of refuge, relief, and reflection uh, that takes us away from the endless news cycle. So these are important questions, questions we should be asking all the time. And I imagine Jesus is doing this same thing in the passage, same thing that preachers and podcasters do today. Notice that Jesus, there, there, Jesus makes a connection between, another, between the question that someone asked from the crowd and another so-called piece of current events. The, at first, someone in the crowd mentions the Galileans, and then the second one, Jesus makes a, for the second news story, Jesus makes a connection involving a building collapse where people were killed. He brings that up on his own. The details are fuzzy, as I said, with both of these stories. But I just want to point out that both of these stories are mentioned. One of them comes, is brought up by someone in the crowd. One of them is brought up by Jesus. Jesus reflects on both of these things because he had to. What do I mean by that? I'm getting, I'm getting to my first point here. He had to mention these things because they were on people's minds. They were on people's minds so much that they brought them up. Why did they bring this up? Well, they, they brought it up because they cared or they were confused or they had questions or they were just preoccupied with these stories for some reason. Those are some of the ways you and I react to current events, to news stories, to stuff that's important. We wonder we think, we think, how should we act? We want to raise the topic. Furthermore, rather than just being something to talk about, you know, this isn't chit-chat or gossip, Jesus's response to the question from the crowd shows that Jesus was aware that people had already developed a theology around this piece of news. They developed the theologies. Here's what I mean. Jesus said in his response, don't think that just because this happened that these people were worse sinners than you. They weren't worse than you, but just like you, they need to repent. Okay, now, I'm not putting aside the topic of sin and repentance. Notice this. When someone brings up current events, Jesus responds by engaging the topic and helping the crowd to think theologically in a way that avoids judgment. Jesus encourages the audience to identify with the people who experienced a tragedy as people. Identify with people who experienced a tragedy as people. And Jesus helps them rethink the theology that they had already created and were carrying around in their heads. This is a wonderful way to respond to current events. We should identify with people as people. And we need to address the theological assumptions that we have created to make sense of the world, even if we don't know that we've made those theological assumptions. You know, whether we realize it or not, we're always making theology, 
about the events in the world. That's just what theology is. Theology is our attempt to bring God into dialogue with what's going on around us. It's always situational, conversational, just a, a natural sort of thing. Theology is our set of assumptions, our storytelling, our responses grounded in our relationship with God, our responses to the world around us. Whether we realize it or not, we're always making theology about the events in our world. If pastors and podcasters, preachers, I should say, if preachers and podcasters choose not to address what's going on in the world, if we, if we say we're not going to talk about it, guess what? People are creating theology about it anyway. This is one of the basic affirmations of this podcast. If preachers don't mention white supremacy in their sermons, then churches will develop a theology of white supremacy anyway. It cannot be avoided. We can't avoid it. Even if we don't mention something, people will develop a theology about it anyway. In fact, especially if we don't mention something, people will develop a theology about it anyway. Okay, let me make a, a connection to something in the news, current events, if you will, something we're all thinking about. Uh, last Friday, March 15th, Farid Hafiz uh, was on Democracy Now!, and he was talking about the horrible news story of the, the murders of Muslim worshippers in Christchurch, New Zealand. And in the interview uh, with Amy Goodman, he said that when he first heard about the story, uh, he was sharing the story on social media, learning about it. But, but he didn't think about it a whole lot in a sense because he didn't realize what a big news story it would be because stuff like this happens all the time. And... News outlets in the world, so to speak, don't pay attention. Now, my point here is that this expert, this scholar, this writer who focuses on Islamophobia uh, had this assumption, which is normally correct, that no one would, would talk about these murders. No one would give space to the murder of Muslims by a white supremacist because people never give time and care and thought and love to events like this. The reasons it's it's not that the the it's not that Farid uh, Hafiz didn't care. It's that he knows the game. He knows the system. And the reason stories like this don't normally get covered is, of course, because white supremacy and Islamophobia and violence created by white men so normal, so common, in a sense, if you will, acceptable by the the standards of of the the powers that be. White media. White people have accepted the story that Muslims get murdered en masse by white people. We've created an understanding, if you will, a theology that allows us to integrate this horrible fact into our lives. So we don't have to pay attention because our lives and our churches have made space for this reality. Now, Fareed Hafiz on Democracy Now! was pointing out that what is rare is not a mass shooting of Muslims at prayer. What is rare is actually for the Western white world to explicitly and publicly try to recognize the horror and the inhumanity of this mass murder. That's what's rare, to pay attention, to care, and to have your, your life or your day interrupted for a moment and to think that something should have to change, to respond by saying white supremacy is a global menace. That's what's rare. Those, uh, the, a response like that, you know, it's not the norm. The point I'm trying to make, the first point, <laughs> uh, is that our lectionary reading 
is an exercise in raising this sort of awareness. Jesus speaks to what is going on in the world and challenges the assumed theological responses to mass death. I guess I'll read that sentence again. Jesus speaks to what's going on in the world and challenges the assumed theological responses to mass death. Preachers and podcasters should do the same. Now, of course, hey, you can't speak to everything. You can't cover everything. You can't even know about everything or be aware of it. But let's realize that even when we try to avoid current events or white supremacy or Islamophobia, we are promoting a theology, whether we realize it or not. This reminds me of the saying I associate with Howard Zinn. He wrote a book that has this as a title. You can't be neutral on a moving train. As we all know, of course, if a, if a preacher says, if a preacher ever says, oh, I don't talk about white supremacy or I don't talk about Islamophobia, if they say that, it means that they support white supremacy and Islamophobia, right? We have to take responsibility. This is my first point. Engage reality. Acknowledge humanity. Address our assumptions. Okay, that's the hard part of this passage. Now let's turn our attention to the, the parable of the fig tree. I have two points about this parable that I hope are easier to express. Uh, the parable, this parable of the fig tree is a story about, very simply, two options. Either cut down the so-called dead tree for not bearing fruit, or give it a little more time, love, and care. Those are the two options. What's fun about this parable is that rather endorsing one option of what should be done this parable allows for us to consider both possibilities. You know, should, should the tree be cut down or should it be given more time? The answer is yes. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the option to cut down the tree. Let's endorse this option for, first. This is my second point to this podcast episode. It's a very simple point. My second point with you is this. You need to cut down the things that need to go. That's it. You need to cut down the things that need to go. Cut them down. And I want to make an obvious and much-needed connection here with white supremacy. How should we react to white supremacy? How about this? Cut it down. Need to get rid of it. Chop it down. Strike it up. Strike, strike it out. We need a response that is strong, clear, declarative, unequivocal. We need to be certain and unambiguous in our response to white supremacy. Do, are you feeling this energy? I, you know, there are some times in life, obviously, when we need to weigh all the sides and develop nuanced approaches that, you know, accounts for all the data. But sometimes we need to pick up an axe and hack the fuck away at the trunk. This is very clear. There are times when we need to pick up our tools and use them. Now, you know, I'm speaking metaphorically. This can mean so many things about what it means to cut down white supremacy. It's obviously not as easy as it sounds, but it is work with a clear purpose, a clear goal that we actually have to do. This is why I like this metaphor. So I, I have an anecdote, small story that gets at the feeling of this. Cut it down. Okay. Uh, here's the story. About a year ago, uh, I came across a swastika on a bench in my neighborhood where I live, right by my house, right by my church. Uh, swastika, you know, it's America. So I saw this swastika and I thought, what should I do? is disgusting and scary and made me feel a little sick. You know, there are so many responses were possible. I thought about 
you know, I thought about taking a picture of it and putting it on social media and calling it out. I thought about writing a letter to the editor of the town paper. I thought about calling a community meeting with my neighbors. So I, I spoke to a, a, a friend of mine who told me, you know what you should do, Will? You should strike that shit out. Get a Sharpie, go back to the bench, block it out. It's so easy. That's the first thing you should do. Strike it out. Sometimes we need responses like this. You know, uh, doing other things in addition are okay, but sometimes we just need to have that sort of focus and clarity where we need to chop down the tree, strike out the graffiti, block out the hate, dismantle white supremacy. I know that Sharpies are not enough on their own and, you know, uh, blacking out a swastika is not cutting down white supremacy once and for all, but it's one in Sharpies are one instrument that we should know how to use is what I'm saying. And, uh, so this is my second point. Don't miss this simple, clear message that we can get from this parable. Cut it down. There needs to be space for this sort of energy and this sort of response. No time for shyness or uncertainty. Cut it down. Okay. Having said that, <laughs> now my last point, the third point about this parable. This is a bit of a contradiction, but this is a parable, so deal with it. Sometimes we need to cut things down. But in this world at times, there's also the need for patience, right? Instead of chopping down the tree, there's also the possibility of nurturing it with patience. Now, I'm not talking about white supremacy anymore, just to be clear. I'm switching metaphors here. I'm talking about the things we want to grow. Sometimes when confronted with frustrations and challenges and a lack of results, we don't need a Sharpie. We don't need a short temper, but we need patience. Now, patience in the parable is represented by time, a year, and it's also represented by manure. And the lesson here, very simply, my last point that I want to share is this. Shit makes things grow. This is an important lesson. I know it's not news to you. We face a lot of shit. If you're attuned to God, if you're passionate about justice, if you're committed to being anti-racist, you're going to face a lot of shit. Now, I'm not saying we need to, you know, just accept shit or seek it out or that suffering or hardship is positive or it's really a good thing if things go bad. No, not at all. But I just know, as I'm sure you do too, that shit makes things grow. How much shit have you faced in your life? How much shit have you seen others face? Now, of course, we should try to mitigate harm. We should definitely try to improve quality of life. We should work for good, intend good things for others. But at the end of the day, there's a whole lot of shit in this world. It does help things grow. This takes patience. This is my last point. It's the other side to chop down that tree. On the one hand, sometimes we need to chop down the tree. Get the Sharpie. Strike that shit out. On the other hand, sometimes we need patience. And we need to remember that growth can come through facing shit. Now, I'm not going to be patient with swastikas in my neighborhood. And likewise, at the same time, I'm not always just going to start swinging destructively at every obstacle and setback I face. We have to know when to do what. This takes discernment. And that's what this whole parable is all about. When do we swing the axe? When do we allow time for things to grow? Don't be patient with white supremacy. You know, sometimes we think we're being patient and, and savvy and smart when we're just being avoidant. Likewise, 
Don't be impatient with fertilizer. Do you get it? You know, sometimes we think we're being principled and clear when we're just being reckless and foolish. Know when to swing the axe. Know when to cultivate growth. That sort of discernment is needed uh, in our relationships, in our networks, in our communities. You know, sometimes we need to be decisive in our relationships and networks and communities. Sometimes we need to be patient. So I offer you this parable. What do you need? Do you need an axe to cut something down with? Or do you need a pitchfork to spread some manure and give it time? You can also think of this personally and internally, you know, within your own spirit, within your own self as a person. Sometimes we need to get rid of things, you know, cut them down, even violently rid ourselves of things that are a part of, uh, that are inside of us. Sometimes we just need to calm down because growth is happening. Again, which instrument do you need from your proverbial tool shed for you as a person? You need an axe or a pitchfork? I do want to say a word of caution, uh, which is white people are prone to inaction. We're prone to telling ourselves we're doing the work when we're not, when we're just avoiding it. My sense is that we need to use the axe more often than we realize, more often than we're prone to believe. So I want to say that in this parable also, real patience, real patience is not easy and low stress and gentle. Real patience in this parable stinks like shit. You know, so if you're taking a path that is easy and gentle and you're telling yourself you're being patient, maybe patience is more active and difficult than, than you realize. In conclusion, wrapping up here, this brings me back to what I said at the beginning about implicit theology. Even if we think we're just being patient and prudent, we need to be careful what sort of theology we're really endorsing. Don't be patient with white supremacy. Be clear. Be strong. Patience should be clear and strong. It should be principled. In the parable, even patience has a timeline. It has a strategy and it has a goal. So I want to invite you to reflect on these three points in your own context. First, there's the point about how Jesus spoke to what was happening in the world around him. My question for you is, what theology have you developed without even realizing it? Are there realities or experiences or just things that you've avoided integrating or acknowledging or, or approaching around which you've developed uh, default implicit theology without realizing it? What have you avoided that you need to address? Secondly, what do you need to strike out in your community? What do you need to chop down in yourself? I love trees, so this metaphor is hard for me, but what needs to come down? And then finally, how are you practicing patience with wisdom? Patience doesn't mean being a pushover. It doesn't mean being a coward. How do you practice strategic patience? When is it time to be patient and how do you discern that? Okay, that's all I've got. Thank you for joining me. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud and also at Stitcher and iTunes. Search the word as resistance. You can interact with us there, and transcripts are available on our website. As always, the music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. 
It's called We're Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement practice to bring singing back into direct actions in other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. <laughs> 